Howdy, sports fans. Now, we spend a lot of time discussing the concept of sport, the athlete, and the role they play in wider society. As we've been writing and editing the next episode of Outspoken, we've been confronted with this question in light of a major war. Of course, that changes things dramatically, right? Or does it? As we've been debating this, we keep coming back to something a guest said on a previous episode of the show. So today, we wanted to dive back into the archive with alpinist Adrian Coaster. As I said, we have a brand new episode of Outspoken coming next week, so please stay tuned for that. But before the whistle sounds, I also want to add, we somewhat officially launched the Thereabouts Discord, which I'm calling The Cord, uh, and to be honest, has been a lot more fun than I expected it to be. So get on and get involved via our Instagram or our website. And of course, if you like our films, you like our podcasts, puppies, ice cream, comedies, and you want to see more of them, hear more of them, then please head to our website and become a member. It really does make a huge difference. All right, all right. Here we go. From thereabouts, I'm Angus Morton, and this is Outspoken. It was the middle of 2016, and sitting across the relatively empty college dining hall from me, I noticed a skinny young kid eating alone. It's a scene that is as common as it is unremarkable in the world of professional sport. The endless cycle of eat, sleep, train, compete leaves you looking for solace in strange places, like the dining hall. However, the intensity in this kid's eyes was different from the typical thousand-mile stares that populate the room. It was the type I'd only seen in one other athlete before, the eyes of Lance Armstrong. That evening was the last before the opening stage of the Tour of Utah, North America's most mountainous cycling race, and that kid was Adrian Coaster. Over the next seven days, in rather dramatic fashion, he would go on to finish second in the race at only 18 years of age, his performance beyond his years. We were witnessing the rise of a once-in-a-generation champion, until suddenly, we weren't. What happens when someone with the drive and talent to be the best veers onto a different track? That's Adrian's story. Adrian Costa, I uh, currently live in Bend, Oregon, and would define myself as just a lover of the outdoors and lover of um, adventure, you know? At only 23, Adrian's story is one of almost constant redefinition. Growing up in the Bay Area with parents hailing from France, Adrian spent his summers in Europe and his spare time participating in the typical American school sports. That was until one defining moment, in his words. I distinctly remember I was, uh, <laughs> I was probably in like sixth grade or so, and um, I had like an old mountain bike that I'd put on, you know, like those clip-on aero bar things. So I had these aero bars on my mountain bike and I was just charging around the neighborhood. I must have had my head down or something because I just slammed into the back of a, a parked car. <laughs> and uh, I broke my arm doing that. I was still playing soccer at the time, but um, after I broke my arm, they kept like sitting me on the bench most of the games and we'd be driving like three hours to go to a soccer game and I'd play like five minutes or more. And so, you know, I had this slowly dying passion for soccer and simultaneously this growing passion for, for cycling. And it was around that sixth, seventh grade mark where you know, cycling kind of became the only thing I was, I was really doing. And um, 
I remember telling kids back in middle school that, you know, I ride bikes and they'd be like, yeah, I ride bikes too. I ride my bike to school. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. At the same time, it was really hard to relate to other people around me as a kid growing up in the U.S. just because it's not really in the mainstream at all. So it was kind of just my own thing that, that slowly grew and grew and grew. Despite not having any schoolmates to train with, like all young sports fans, he was emulating his heroes on home roads. And his hero was... The one and only Lance. I mean, um, <laughs> I remember like we'd go to these summer camps and the, the summer camp t-shirt was just this yellow t-shirt. So we would uh, bring those home and like literally draw like the U.S. Postal like logo on it and everything. And, you know, we had it all decked out. We had like polka dot jerseys and stuff. So, yeah, I have a younger brother and him and I would, you know, do like just fake Tour de France's throughout the hills uh, around our house. <laughs> In those early days spent pretending to be Lance at the tour, it was the creativity and freedom training provided that kept him motivated. I just love training, man. I just, I love the how hard it was and how, how satisfying it was to just go on these massive rides and yeah, just push myself to the to mental and physical limit. But I just loved the places my bike would take me to and the, the creative loops I could, I could make in, in every training ride. So, you know, until I was like 17 or 18, my coach would just be like, yeah, go like four hours moderate and push it on the climbs if you want to. And I would take that as like, you know, let's go rip the shit out of this climb. So that part was like really playful and fun and, 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 and super exciting for me. And like I said, I really relished those long training rides. It was an adventure every time, man. But as his confidence grows, he begins competing and the freedom and creativity gives way to regime. As I ended, like started nearing the end of my junior years, started working with like a coach a bit more seriously, really focusing on like intervals and, and all that kind of thing. That really became like the day-to-day -day norm. And then, yeah, I guess at that point, it was really just putting in the time, putting in the focused effort for this goal of becoming the best I could be. And I don't know, that process was all-encompassing and extremely satisfying and, and rewarding, especially when I would see the fruits of that, of that work. Already winning national titles, there was bigger fish to fry and little time to enjoy the early success. With no time to stop and smell the roses, Adrian was being pushed or rather, pushing himself beyond his years. He already knew himself that there was a future for him in cycling, and others did too. Still, in the junior ranks, he was being exposed to the mechanism of professional sport, and he finds his core principles starting to be challenged. I did like four or five training camps, you know, those preseason training camps down in Spain with, with the pros and stuff, and um, yeah, I don't know, kind of getting thrown into that, that pro cycling system for me, it was a bit of a reality check and probably a bit too much too soon, but sitting down to breakfast right next to, to the best in the game and the best in the world at, at this sport, I don't know, it was sort of a, a reality check where I was like, man, you know, they're, they're just waking up in the morning, eating breakfast and getting on their bike as well. And we're all just kind of in this, in this machine that's never stopped, you know, and the training and the daily routine and the travel and all this time away from home and the endless hotels and traveling to races across the year, you know, it just never stops. And at, at a certain point, I think you kind of, you lose your individual identity as a rider and you sort of have to meet expectations of the team and what they want you to do in races and off the bike and, and training wise too, you kind of lose all that control and you're kind of thrown into to the system where, you know, you kind of lose your voice and 
you know, I'll, I'll watch interviews of, of, of the guys that are winning and everything they say just feels so scripted and so like, so uh, pre-thought pre out and no one's really like speaking their mind and, and trying to be original or authentic. And pretty quickly when I got in that world, I felt like I was kind of losing my sense of like who I was deep down. Yeah, and sort of having to sacrifice a lot of that, that um, just my identity, I guess, for this thing. Graduating from the junior ranks with medals in world championships, he enters the elite or open category and to immediate success. He was the first US national to win the Tour of Bretagne, a major stage race in France. He was second at the Tour of Utah, arguably North America's toughest bike race. And he was third at the coveted Tour de l'Avenir, considered by all to be a litmus test for the Tour de France. On top of that, he landed an apprenticeship with the world's top team, Quickstep. The year was 2016. I had uh, much more successful of a season than I had ever dreamed of having um, that year. That's the year I did like Britannia and, and Utah and, and Lavenir and races like that. Um, and as a first year, you know, going into that season, I was just like, you know, it'd be cool to even participate and check those races out, see what they're all about. And maybe a couple years down, I can try to be competitive. But, you know, having had that success unexpectedly so quickly, you know, all the, all the media requests came in quickly and all these expectations. And like I said, already starting to be in contact with pro teams and all that stuff. And that's when it slowly started to shift. And I realized like, wow, <laughs> I have an opportunity here to, um, to really do something with cycling. At the same time, it, it felt like something was missing. And um, I remember just going on this training ride um, in France one day and I was living down in Nice. So that's where all, a lot of the pros are living. And, you know, you'd see guys like Froome and Grant Thomas and whatever just out training on the same roads as you. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, shit, like, this is what the next 20 years of my life is going to look like. You know, just wake up, train, go home, eat some food and wait till dinner, eat again and go to bed. You know, like, I was like, man, I want... <laughs> there's got to be something more to this. Like, I don't know. It felt like I just had this this deep feeling in me that life was too short to kind of pursue this one thing. And um, yeah, to me quickly, it, this like extrinsic success that I could have had would not have been enough, I think, to, to sort of satisfy those, those deeper questions. And obviously that success comes at a, a really serious cost. With all that outward success, Adrian was starting to lose grip on his identity and with the cycling world starting to create their own version of him, he began to look for a way out, which, when you're cycling's next big thing, isn't so easy. Well, first of all, I need to say that that was really, really hard 12 months for me because I think other than, other than my mom, who I, I talked about this stuff with, um, there wasn't really anyone I felt like I could trust with that, you know? And I felt like it was just kind of my duty was to kind of uphold this this, this image of this guy who has it all figured out. And you know, you start having those successes, you start becoming a leader in your team, people start looking up to you, people I've never met know who you are, and I'm just like, it's just this, this very like arbitrary almost and, and kind of honestly not that, not that accurate image of, of who you've become and uh, you kind of do feel a pressure to, to keep checking those boxes, I guess. Going into the 2017 season, I could feel that my body was just not responding. I think I got way too skinny in 2016. And I remember like we did the Perry roubaix U23 and 
it was muddy and I probably ingested some cow shit somehow, <laughs> but my body was so weak that I was out for a month, you know? So there's definitely a huge physical component there. I also remember just being at these races and being in this, in this hotel room and just feeling alone, man, feeling like I didn't want to be there, feeling like I had no one to talk to, feeling like this was just not for me. And like I said, I kept that to myself for quite a while. I realized that it wasn't serving my duty to the team and my teammates to, to go to these races when I wouldn't be able to give them what they deserve. So I sat down with our sports director and yeah, I basically was telling them like, look, like, I, I don't know what's going on physically. I, I just can't perform in these races right now. I need to change something. I think continuing to race right now is not the best idea. And I'll be forever grateful to Axel in that, in that time. He was so generous to me and, and gave me the space and support that I needed and that I felt like I didn't deserve really. And it was really hard for me to accept that at the time. I guess, yeah, around May or so, I kind of stepped back from racing and I was in France. I was trying to make a life for myself there, um, regardless of whether cycling would be a part of that or not. I love being able to connect to sort of that culture and the pride and passion people have for their own backyards. I think that's something that's really missing in America is that connection to where people live and the individual things that those places have to offer. But at the same time, you know, this, this cycling decision was still in the back of my mind and I couldn't get it out and I couldn't just relax for a month and, and let that sit. It was like every day, like, am I gonna get back into training or not? And I just go through these cycles of like, I'd get like three solid days of training in and then I'd be like, nah, screw that. Like, I, I don't want this, you know? Um, and it kept cycling like that for a while. Eventually I came back to the States. Yeah, I tried, tried getting back into some, some more old school type training like I was doing before. I reconnected with my old coach. But at the same time, you know, I could feel that I would either never have the level I had again, or if I did, it would take getting back into that extremely unbalanced state of daily life, I guess. And I wasn't sure I'd ever able, be able to do that again. You know, by the end of that year, I sort of realized I had this decision to make. I could either come back to cycling and in a somewhat <laughs> more mediocre capacity and sort of have a more balanced relationship with it in my life, but I still had this somewhat all or nothing mentality of I was like, you know, if I'm going to sacrifice so much for this thing, you know, I want to give it my best shot. And I felt like I felt like my best shot was kind of slipping through my fingers at that point. I think I just had to eventually just let go, trust the process, trust my inner voice that was just saying, no, it's time to move on. Free of the sport, Adrian is free to be himself. But without the context he'd had provided his life for so long, being himself is more difficult than you thought. That process of giving up cycling, kind of losing that identity, that was almost just as hard, man, not gonna lie. Like, since I was 12 years old, that was my goal in life, is, is to, to make it as a pro cyclist, and that's who I was. That's what I did, that's what people knew me by. And to lose that, you know, I felt so empty-handed, so lost, so confused for quite a while. Um, I think I'm the kind of person that just needs to, to be doing things always to move forward. You know, that's something I'm working on, but, <laughs> but um, you know, I kind of just focused myself on, on, on school, finishing school, because that's something I'd continued to do while I was racing. I was doing like online schooling and stuff. But I never lost the identity of an athlete, you know? I never lost that. That's, that's always been and probably always will be a big part of my life. I think that brings me a lot of 
it just grounds me in the day to day and you can't take care of yourself mentally without taking care of yourself physically. I think it all kind of comes together. It's around that time that I really, I found rock climbing and um, yeah, started doing some like ski mountaineering and stuff um, up here in Bend when I came up here for school. And so, yeah, it's, I guess sort of shifted from this identity as a pro competitive professional cyclist or whatever to you know, working on myself intellectually and, and my career paths and, and what I wanted to do with the rest of my life and how to give back to the world around me while, you know, still having these outlets, these physical outlets that for the first time since I was like, again, 12 years old and just discovering cycling, I could, I could pursue these things purely for myself and purely for what it was bringing me, purely what those experiences were bringing me and the people I could go do them with. Yeah, I mean, that's, that was just as satisfying um, as cycling. Still searching for definition, Adrian seeks transcendence where so many have before, the mountains. I don't know, man, I've been drawn to the mountains my whole life. And I think in cycling, that's what I loved is, is riding my bike up passes and finding the most beautiful roads. I think that's where I found the most flow and the most like transcendence of myself. I don't know what it is. I really don't. I think the mountains in general make me feel small, but inspired at the same time. And it's sort of this expansive, like this expansive feeling of, of myself kind of becoming one with, with the surroundings and, and the beauty of, of the natural world around me. That summer when I was starting doing a lot more hiking and, and some easy scrambles in the Alps, um, <laughs> I knew I wanted to learn the skills to, to be able to do cooler and cooler mountains and, and really get up close and personal with them. <laughs> that was really exciting because in cycling, it's like you're in the mountains, quote unquote, but you know, you're going over a pass and what's a pass? A pass is the lowest point in a mountain, right? The most logical point to go through a range of mountains. But like you have these mountains that go thousands of, of meters above you. And for me, I don't know, it's, it's, almost like a hell of a lot cooler than, than just riding on a road where, where there's cars and, and, and traffic and shit. Yeah, again, that feeling of flow and, and transcendence and just connecting to the mountains. A lot of time I go out myself too, and it's just, yeah, pretty powerful, you know, borderline like spiritual experiences out there. Up until this point, it was Adrian's incredible dedication that had defined his successes. His all or nothing mentality that had seen him succeed in cycling was also what helped him to break from it. It's the idea that if we're not grabbing life by the horns and making it work for us, we're somehow failing at living. But, as we're about to find out, who's really got who by the horns? I had just gotten an old beater van, actually, like a big camper van. I don't know, just went on a road trip. Um, <laughs> a buddy and I from school, we, we went on a road trip to like uh, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. And we're just, you know, camping out, climbing, having a good time. That's how I wanted to spend my summer, just sort of live on like a, a simpler frequency, I guess, and um, have all summer to devote myself to, to climbing. Um, so eventually my buddy went home. I was in the Sierras. I guess I just had a day, a day off climbing with no partners, and I wanted to give sort of my upper body a rest and, and kind of go on like a more mountaineering type adventure with some easy climbing. So originally my intention was to do like this link up of uh, 
this one peak that had like a thousand foot like snow slash ice couloir. So I had like ice tools and crampons and everything. So the plan was to do that and then traverse a ridge and then hit, hit this other mountain via a, a, a moderate ridge climb. I got to the couloir and at the base of the couloir there's like a bergschrung which is sort of like this overhanging crevasse type thing that you know was 15-20 feet high. It was too warm that day so I couldn't really climb it because I would stick my tools in there and the snow wasn't hard enough for them to stick. They would just kind of shear out of the snow. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how I was definitely a bit more reckless back then. It was only like 10 a.m. and I met some dude out there and we like kind of started hiking back to the car and we're just chatting and we're like, yeah, I guess the mountains are saying, you know, that's enough for a day. <laughs> Let them be, we'll come back some other day. But I don't know, just I had this, this thing in me that just, I don't know, I really don't know where it's from. It's always just wanting more, always wanted to push myself more. I didn't want to just go back to the car at 10 a.m. Had the whole day. So I started making my way by myself up to this other mountain, Mount Kness. I didn't really know shit about the route. I didn't really know like the approach or whatever. I just knew the ridge I had to get to. And yeah, I was just hiking up past these lakes, these like beautiful alpine lakes. I even like jumped into one of them. And um, I just remember like really not feeling that stoked for the day um, and just feeling like something was off. The night before I was kind of up late and sort of in my head like, what am I doing here? Like. I'm just by myself, like sort of like these existential type questions kind of flooding in. And yeah, that day the, the stoke wasn't high, but I just felt like I had to keep pushing to make myself feel okay. So yeah, I didn't listen to my, didn't listen to, I guess my conscience telling me that it wasn't the right day and just kept plowing along. And I remember even on the way up, I was kind of like, just not, not flowing well, kind of like tripping occasionally. Anyways, I get up to like close to the ridge and it looks like there's a shortcut out to the left to cut out, cut out a lot of the approach and sort of get a more direct path onto the ridge with some easy rock climbing. But to get there it kind of required traversing through this big, big loose boulder field. Yeah, it was early in the summer, so the snow was still melting and I think a lot of stuff was kind of I'm coming loose because it's held together all winter by the snow and kind of coming loose. So again, not super mindfully, just kind of start questing through this this talus field. And um, yeah, eventually I just stepped on the wrong block, and uh, it it fell to my to my left actually. Somehow my right leg ended up getting pinned by this this boulder that fell. And yeah, before I knew it, I was just stuck between these two massive granite boulders, all of a sudden I was like, holy shit, like this is real, like just freaked out. I like threw my backpack out of reach actually because I just freaked out and I was like, didn't know like what to do. So yeah, my backpack was out of reach and I it took me just a minute to realize how serious this was. I mean, the only thing I could do at that point was just start screaming. And so I probably spent 45 minutes just absolutely howling for my life and any hope of anyone hearing me and coming to help me. Yeah, it's in, it's in those moments where you really feel like that survival instinct kicked in and, and it's, um, yeah, at the end of the day, I feel like we're all just animals and we're all just fighting to hang on to this little sliver of life that we're lucky enough to have, you know? 
But so, yeah, I'm just reduced to just fucking like desperately, desperately crying for help. You know, thankfully enough, uh, a couple climbers had been hiking down earlier and they heard me screaming and they were able to scramble up to me on the boulders. And um, one of them was, was trained in like wilderness first responder. Um, and he like set up a tourniquet on my leg. And since I was pinned like right above the knee, I couldn't like sit on my ass. So my, my back was like actually getting extremely sore because if I torqued the leg in any way, it would just be unbearably painful. So I was just kind of like precariously like balancing myself to be as comfortable as I could. And so he basically <laughs> put the tourniquet on my leg and this was like a support for my body. I was just kind of leaning on him for hours while um, they got a rescue started with um, a GPS beacon type thing. The other climber, Kimberly, who I've since climbed with a few times, but she was like waving like this, this red jacket to try to get anyone up higher up on the mountain to, to sort of realize that we needed help because we weren't sure how, how quickly the, the satellite thing would go through. And it was probably six or seven hours of that, of just waiting. My leg went numb pretty quick. So honestly, that wasn't really the most painful part. You know, we'd hear, we'd hear an airplane and think it was a, a helicopter and get our hopes up and then it all come crashing back down. But um, in that time, it was the first time that I had time to sit and reflect in almost my whole life, man, because up to that point through my cycling and kind of, I talked about this earlier, after cycling, I kind of, my way of coping with that transition was to start pursuing other things with the same passion as, as I had with cycling. So I feel like I never really gave myself the time to sit and let my life sink in up to that point. And when I was stuck under that rock, it felt like everything kind of was put on pause, you know, like everything just comes crashing to a halt and yeah, it was powerful. It was it was extremely powerful. Just looking up to like the mountains around me, the stillness there, the beauty, but at the same time the 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 um I don't know how to put this to words. I mean, the mountains don't give a shit about you, you know, and that's kind of what I realized sitting there is they're beautiful, but they don't give the slightest shit about you and you know, you don't respect them for one second, you lose focus for one second and they'll get you. And so, I think being stuck there kind of gave me the time to put things into perspective, put my life into perspective and realize again that life is short, that we're lucky to be alive and that every moment is precious. At the end of the day, all we have is the people around us, I think, you know, sitting there with these total strangers that became close friends, that's sort of what I realized is that, you know, there's no meaning, meaning to life without sharing experiences with other people. You know, it became pretty obvious pretty quick that there wasn't that much hope for my leg. I think I had like open tib-fib fractures and it was mangled and it was like, tourniquet was on for seven hours or eight hours, like there was no hope. But I remember being totally fine with that. The only thing I, I wanted was to just be able to freaking move again, you know? Just get out of that rock was all I wanted. I didn't give a shit 
about a prosthetic or whatever, I tried making these promises to myself of like, okay, if I ever get out of here, you know, sort of like the praying to God type thing. But if I ever get out of here, like, you know, I'm gonna really, 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 really try to focus on taking every moment as it comes and being grateful for every moment, kind of accepting this, this grander perspective of life. You know, it's obviously not that simple, but at the end of the day, honestly, I'm still grateful for that experience. I think it taught me a lot and I think it sort of was a, a forced reset button that sort of um, gave me a glimpse into, again, like I said, the impermanence of our lives and how, how fragile they are, but also how valuable every moment is. <laughs> um, and just how important it is to, um, to do more than just selfishly pursue things because you can selfishly pursue shit your whole life and then the day you're gonna die, <laughs> you know? <laughs> What's the value in, in, in that, you know? <laughs> Anyways, yeah, back to the accident story, like eventually the helicopter came, there's like this military helicopter, some like sergeant dude like wrapped down and onto the glacier and sort of started barking orders. Eventually they just like lifted the rock like a few inches and got me airlifted out of there. I do remember I was in so much pain and so out of it and kind of hypothermic at that point, but I remember forcing myself to look up as I was being airlifted into this, this black hop chopper and being like, damn, this is kind of cool, you know? <laughs> I hope I never experience it again, but you know, if I'm gonna experience it one, once, I might as well experience it, right? Yeah, it was weird. I remember like sort of tripping out on the ambulance ride because like my eyes were closed and I was like seeing lights and shit with my eyes closed. And I remember like seeing like a, a like sort of like digital, like old style, like video game type screen like pop up and like this like game over sign flashing. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> and then like I opened my eyes and like what I was seeing with my eyes didn't feel any more real than what I was seeing with my eyes closed. and. I remember the nurse who like started laughing at me. I think she kind of knew what was up. I was in the hospital for honestly not that long. I think like 10 days or something because literally the only injury I had was my leg. Like nothing else was, was messed up at all. So I think I did have like five or so surgeries because they wanted to be like super conservative about removing as little tissue as possible and as little bone as possible. So they'd keep going in and shave a little off see how it did, go back in, shave a little more off, whatever. As soon as I was, you know, in not too much pain, I was just able to go home and yeah, that's I guess when the next chapter started. But in all that panic and preceding the clarity, there was a moment when he was forced to contemplate that this might be it for him. I don't know if I'm gonna make it out of here, you know? Even, even once those two climbers came to me, Sam and Kimberly, it was taking a while for the, for the rescue to come and they would like go off to the side and like talk in hushed voices and stuff. And I was like, oh damn, this is not good. <laughs> you know, if they don't want me to hear something, that's not good. It was surrender, I would say, yeah. That's the word I was looking for earlier. It's like, it's totally a surrender of, of your fate, I guess. And being so powerless, that's, it's somewhat traumatizing, but at the same time, I think it can be really empowering. With the new chapter, begins the grappling with the permanence of the incident. Yeah, I mean, the first the first taste of that I got actually in the hospital still. I'd have to be wheelchaired out to go spend time outside, you know? And I've always viewed myself as a really independent person. And so all of a sudden I was just so dependent on my mom and on the nurses to 
take care of me, take me to the bathroom, shower me, take me outside, whatever. So something as simple as going outside all of a sudden became this whole ordeal. And that was really freaking hard to accept. And I remember just crying in the hospital room for a solid hour that day. But also, yeah, going home at first was was insanely hard too. You know, I, I was just in stuck in bed and out my window I could see the hills that I used to, to go ride in as a kid and go escape all the bullshit I was dealing with in my life and in my family life and be able to just go and, ha and have these experiences in the hills by myself and realizing that I would never be able to like spontaneously go and have those experiences again. That was extremely, extremely tough too. You know, I felt like I, I was lucky enough to have had this hard reset and still be alive and still, you know, at the end of the day, like a prosthetic is, there's people that have it a hell of a lot worse, but my mindset was to set myself no limits. And I remember just being at home and already like writing down goals that I wanted for myself goals that would be major accomplishments for able-bodied people and being like there's no fucking reason why i can't have this as a goal you know and make it happen i think that's the first step to accomplishing anything be it in sport or outside of sport but if you have that in place the rest is easy man like getting up and training every day that's easy that's the easy part getting on with it seems to be in adrian's blood but how do you bounce back from such a traumatic injury is it possible to have a better life? I mean, I didn't really give a shit what anyone, anyone else thought. I'd like go like, before I even had a prosthetic, um, I would like crutch into the climbing gym and, and go climbing with, with, with just the one leg and go to, go to the regular gym and stuff and, and bike with just one leg or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I could talk for hours about how people perceive stuff like that. I, I think I just spent, I spent a lot of time with, with friends and family. I think it was a huge opportunity to reconnect with, with people that before I, I either didn't take the time to spend time with or just didn't view those interactions as, as valuable as I did before. And so I think it did bring me a lot closer to a lot of people um, and kind of let me like cut through a lot of the bullshit and sort of get to, to really like who I am and what I believe. And I went on like a backpacking trip with some friends <laughs> uh, from Bend and I, I was in crutches, man. <laughs> like backpacking in crutches before I had a leg. And um, you know, once, once I had a, a prosthetic and stuff, I think I took, took every day as it came and, and was just super grateful to be able to go hiking and, and climbing again and, and biking actually. Felt like this reconnection of my past self with my new self. Um, and it, it's, it's what I knew, it's what I knew and it's what I knew brought me joy. I'm, I'm not gonna lie, like as, as I started gaining mobility and sort of started getting strength back and, and whatever, I could feel that, I call it like the old Adrian kind of coming back in of, of always wanting more, always wanting to improve, wanting to, to start accomplishing bigger and better things. And so that has been and continues to be a process for me, I think. It's been a lot better in the last year or so, but, you know, I tried to be really mindful about, you know, reconnecting with the things that I learned in that period and not letting myself be carried away with the sort of more 
materialistic side of things and, and wanting to accomplish this or that. Life's a blank canvas and I feel like I'm privileged enough to, to choose how to paint that. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> I don't wanna I don't wanna mess up the painting, but at the same time I don't think yeah, I don't think you can mess it up too bad. <laughs> Are you happy now? Are you happier now? I think so, yeah. Still a work in progress and I think I think what I struggle with a little bit is um having been so so close to like to death in, in that experience and then choosing to continue to participate in risky activities, you know, which is exactly what sort of led into led to my accident. That's sort of this paradox that that can be a bit hard to reconcile in my head. Sort of the existential thoughts of like, you know, it could all end at any minute. <laughs> Whether it's driving your car to work or, or going and climbing a mountain, you know, like shit happens and I think, you know, I think that's something that I could probably be a little bit at, at more at peace with. With the hard reset giving him a new perspective, Adrian takes to honing his skills in the mountains with the mission of becoming a more complete, capable athlete. And perhaps, to no surprise, before long, he proves it. Here in Bend, we have the three sisters, the three big mountains. Before my accident, going and climbing one of those was like, you know, 12 plus hour days sometimes, depending on the route, and quite a feat. And this year, I did them all in a day, in a single push by myself. That was like, holy shit, like this is this goal I had since I moved to Bend back when I had two legs. And back when I had two legs, I was, it was like mind blowing to think about. And I went and, and did that this year. And that was like, just like, man, like this shit's possible. And it's just so exciting to see like where I can take that in the future. I tried to not, not get carried away. One of my favorite mountaineering quotes is, uh, the mountains will always be there. The most important thing is to make sure that you are. You know, I want to be an old climber. I want to, I want to be around for a bit. And so I've been intentionally taking a step back from it when I need to. Like for example, at the end of this season, I had a couple of close calls where I could feel like either I was like having a lapse in focus or just getting after it too much. And I could feel like, you know, like I felt this before, this is familiar. Hmm. <laughs> Last time I kept pushing when I felt this way, it didn't turn out so good. And so I think now I have the ability to take a step back and realize, okay, you know, maybe it's time to focus on other things, so. Eclipsing anything he'd done before, but not without his own close calls, what is it that Adrian's trying to prove? That it can be done. What attracts me to alpinism is that it involves, you know, ice climbing, snow climbing, navigating glaciated terrain, like crevasses and stuff. You need to be a strong rock climber. You need to have your rock climbing systems and, and rope management and all that stuff dialed. You need to just be dialed on, on so many like logistical fronts, but also psychologically, it's like the ultimate challenge because it is dangerous and it does require that focus. And you have to be on point to get through these things safely, but you also have to have the ability to retreat when appropriate and being able to discern, you know, when can I keep going? When do I have to turn around? And then as it relates to, to climbing with a prosthesis too, I mean, A, like I'm an above, above the knee amputee and there's very few above the knee amputees that even rock climb on lead, you know, let alone guys that, that trad climb, which is, you know, you're placing your own protection in cracks. You're not just clipping bolts. There's even fewer doing that in the mountains. 
yeah, I think it's going to be a lifelong process. But to me, the appeal of of these sort of bigger mountain goals is sort of, like I said earlier, it's ultimate challenge, but also it's sort of proving that as an amputee, I can still do these things that, you know, not even that many able-bodied people pursue. And so I think that's what's really exciting for me. And I think I think there's a message to be spread there, kind of, I, I was saying this earlier, but, you know, with the right preparation and the right focus and the right knowledge and experience and the right mindset, I firmly do believe that just about anyone can do whatever the hell they want with their life. One challenge beckons, not for its difficulty, but because it's been left incomplete. It's definitely been a huge positive, positive force. Again, I think in, in cycling, it's, it's easy to get pretty wrapped up in yourself um, and kind of forget about just connecting on a human level with other people. I think climbing is, is a great opportunity for that because most of the time you're going out with a partner and you're kind of sharing these powerful experiences. I've had a little contact with Sam, but it's, it's really with Kimberly that we've, you know, kind of grown this friendship where, you know, honestly, at first, I think she was kind of, she was pretty traumatized by the whole thing and um, probably a bit scared to, to climb with me again. But um, earlier this year, we went out and we, we did the, the traverse, like link up thing that I had originally been trying to do on the day of my accident. And to do it with her was extremely powerful. Honestly, those were some of the, the fondest memories I have in the mountains, just to be able to share that with someone you, you really care about, someone that arguably saved my life. But yeah, off the mountain, I think, I think my priority has, to be, has been to, um, to cultivate balance and not make the same mistakes I made in cycling. And so, again, I realized that nothing's that valuable if it's not shared with other people. So I think, you know, my goal with these climbing objectives is, is to, to share that inspiration and that message of possibility with others. In true humility, where does a guy who once had the cycling world at his feet go next? Yeah, more tangibly in, in my day-to-day life, like I just started this new job actually that it's sort of providing um, like in-home care for people with developmental disabilities. And I think there's, there's a lot of obviously stigma surrounding people that struggle with those kind of things. You know, I've experienced it myself, the stigma around people with a physical disability. And I think breaking through that barrier and and really viewing people as human beings and and seeing what they have to offer and what what they can teach me and and what experiences we can share together and how can I help them make their lives better and what can can I help them learn. To me, that's extremely rewarding. I'm working on starting a a little tutoring business actually with a, with a buddy of mine and the the principle of that is to not only help kids with their academics but also take kids outside and have extracurricular activities and sort of show them the value in, in spending time outside with other people. In many ways I feel like the world is, is becoming a much better place, a much more open-minded place, a much more progressive place but I think we can't forget that the natural world around us is, is all we have it's what's always been there and hopefully we can make sure that it's always going to be there and I think I would love to help inspire this this younger generation to see value in the outdoors for themselves and, and to sort of take it upon themselves to um, take an active role in, in its preservation. So, I guess the question is, what does it look like to face your own mortality? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of like to refer it as like kind of seeing the void, I guess. 
seeing the, the black, the blackness, the whole. It's tough, man. It's, it's really tough. I think it's a process of, of really reflecting on, on the positive things that you can take away from that and the, the fresh perspective you can have. You know, I think all too often we, we get wrapped up in, in our day-to-day -day craziness and, you know, nowadays everyone's just getting fed with news 24-7 and all that kind of crap is kind of driving people crazy. Yeah, I think it's just important to remember that that um, <laughs> on a greater scale there's there's something else out there that kind of unites us all and we're all, we're all in the same boat together and um, sort of remembering the simple things really. Remembering the simple things and, and, and taking them and being grateful for them and sharing them with other people, yeah. I think that's how you deal and grow from something that, yeah, is pretty traumatic. After all his experiences, what has he learned? I'm a strong believer that um, I think people should have passion. I think a life lived by a passion, whatever it is, sport or not, you know. At least for me, I think sport is a process of like self-discovery and self-knowledge, really. Knowing yourself and pushing your limits and kind of dealing with discomfort and pain and whatever and sort of becoming a better person from it. And I think, especially sport in the outdoors, I think that's an amazing vessel for people to re reconnect with with our human nature, which is honestly quite simple. We're just, we're animals. We live <laughs> a bit less now, but we live in a, in a natural world that is also alive. <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> as human beings, you know, we're evolved to be active and to be one with, with the world around us. And I think sport kind of reconnects us with that in a, in a pretty powerful way. Um, and that goes beyond sport. I think there's a lot of people that kind of go outside in a very materialistic way just for the Instagram or just for the cool view or whatever. And to me, I think it's really important to emphasize that I think there should be a bit of a deeper, more, more um, intentional uh, reason for, for pursuing these things, you know. Still classifying himself an athlete despite not pursuing the traditional performance metrics, how does he define himself? Being an athlete is making your sport a priority in life. I think even in my life, there's sacrifices I have to make to still be able to pursue sport. I don't think you're necessarily an athlete if you just go, go on a run when you have the time or go on a bike ride when you have the time or you know go on a trip a year or something. I think, I do think there is an element of making that a part of your daily life and making it a priority in your daily life and making it work with everything else going on in your life, I think that's what makes someone an athlete, yeah. Adrian has always had a simple premise, staying true to himself. His journey in sport has allowed him to find his boundaries and occasionally cross them. Not so much as to define who he is, but who he is not. The Adrian Costa who was courted by the best professional teams in the world isn't the same guy who spent 19 hours atop the Three Sisters alone. It's in that continual process of redefinition where he finds a success that cannot be measured by anything external. At a time when our sporting champions are getting younger and younger, the question arises at what cost and to what end is their success? In this light, Adrian's story seems particularly poignant, but not for the warning signs and missteps, or even that of overcoming extreme adversity. It is poignant because it makes us question the very institutional metrics of success in sport and whether that's worth sacrificing who we are to achieve. 
It's like the moment when you're being airlifted off the mountain in excruciating pain and you force your eyes open to take in the view. You just... Yeah, look, I don't know where I was going with that. Um, to be honest, I just thought that was a pretty fucking cool story. Outspoken is produced and edited by myself, Angus, and Abby Levine. Sound design and mix by Ben Cranell. Executive producer is Isaac Carson. Again, we have a new episode of Outspoken along with Ramble and Scapes coming next week and in the following week so please stay tuned for that if you like what you hear if you like this show then become a member it makes all of the difference you can do so via our webpage thereabouts.ghost.io ghost works in exactly the same way as patreon for those who are a little confused by the name drop into the cord aka the discord server it's called thereabouts come chat It's good time. We will be back next week with a brand new episode of Outspoken. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Angus Morton. Yeehaw!